Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all in person. Um, for those of you who are members, we have met via video, uh, which if I, I can be honest, was not easy for me. And so uh, my wife, we were walking around yesterday and she said, hey everyone, I'm Mike Brooks, because I said that line over and over and over and over again, trying to introduce myself in that video. Um, but I'm glad to be here with you in person. Um, much of us prefer this type of setting, I certainly do, and so for those of you who have met, it's been a pleasure, and I uh, hope to get to meet uh, many more of you as we close out here today. Um, I'll say a bit more at the end of our time together just about the context here, uh, my being here, uh, comment on that a little bit, uh, but for now, suffice to say, I'm honored to be with you, uh, to be teaching in this context, and uh, in view of a call to potentially be joining the pastoral team here at hope, at risk of overstating the matter, uh, it's a bit surreal to be standing in this place. I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later too, um, but engaged in this task is a great joy of mine. And uh, while I'd like to say a little bit more to commend myself at this place, uh, what I'd love to do is, uh, with the time we have together, is to focus on the Word of God and the gospel that beats at the, the very heart of it and uh, spend time there with you. So we'll be continuing today in our series on Matthew. And uh, we'll pick up in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> we'll be continuing in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 will be in verses 13 through 16. So Matthew 5, 13 through 16. I know we've prayed already, but I would love just to take a, a minute here and uh, pray over the preaching of God's word, if you'll pray with me. Father, we thank you for these moments that we get to share together. Uh, there's nothing better for us in this hour than to open your word, to glean from it, to receive it. And so I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would preach a better sermon than the one I've prepared, and that you would prepare our hearts and minds to receive uh, your word for us through it as a community of faith. And uh, we ask this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. As we get started in this passage, it's important to do a couple of things uh, to sort of set the context, to kind of get a feel for what Jesus is after in this particular portion of the Sermon on the Mountain. So we want to lean back into the preceding verses a bit uh, to kind of get our handles on what's going on, what Jesus is actually saying here. So we want to get our bearings in the text. We want to get a feel uh, for Jesus' broader teaching here to his disciples. In order to interpret Jesus' teaching accurately, we want to situate it rightly. And so as we look back, you've been through in the series on Matthew, going through the Beatitudes, and I'm continually awestruck, and you maybe too, in our reading of the Gospels, watching Jesus as he sort of pinpoints individuals in any type of situation or circumstance, he knows what's going on. And he does that here in the Beatitudes to his followers as he's going throughout these blessing sayings, this series of sayings called the Beatitudes. In the preceding verses, Jesus levels with his disciples in any number of situations and circumstances. A plethora of dispositions are represented among them. You'll remember these. Jesus exhorts those who are poor in spirit, who are mourning, the meek, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the merciful and pure in heart, and those who are peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. These dispositions are commonly characteristic of the followers of Christ. This is who they are. And he's pinpointing their circumstance and situation, pointing those out. Yet, he will have them know that on account of these dispositions, and often in spite of these dispositions, that they are outrageously blessed. 
They're outrageously blessed. Do you remember these sayings? Each blessing paired with a promise. They're granted possession of the kingdom of heaven and given comfort. They lay claim to an inheritance of the earth. They experience true satisfaction and receive mercy. They'll see God. Do you remember this? That the pure in heart will see God. And peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God. And finally, those who are persecuted on account of Jesus for righteousness' sake, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. No matter their circumstance, they're outrageously blessed. You may recall that familiar saying in our day, you may have heard it yourself, uh, that one should not be so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. That is to say that one shouldn't think of ethereal things only, have their head in the clouds in such a way that they can be of no good benefit to anyone around them. And yet, what Jesus teaches us in the Beatitudes is that one should probably be as heavenly minded as possible if we're to be any earthly good at all. It's this foundation, this leaping off point for us, the reason we're effective in our world, the reason we're influential in our world, is because we are heavenly minded. Our hearts and minds are set on that trajectory. And this is what Jesus is after in these passages. Interestingly, and you may have noticed this this too, the final beatitude is the only one with which Jesus prepares an addendum of sorts, an extension of his teaching. He goes on to explain it a little bit more as a transition point into the text that we'll be dealing with today, setting up the next bit of his discourse. He says in verse 11, Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you when that happens. But as you're blessed, because you're blessed, there's a right response to that. He says, rejoice and be glad amid that reviling and persecution and false utterance. Rejoice and be glad, not for the suffering and the persecution itself, but because in the midst of it, there's a promise that Christ is holding out. In the midst of that suffering and persecution, there is a great and heavenly reward. Be heavenly minded. And this is par for the course for the disciples, isn't it? We learn here in the text, um, Jesus says plainly, that the prophets who went before, he says, have been persecuted too. So in some measure, when you're suffering, not in general on account of your own uh, belligerence or kind of own disposition toward others, but on account of the gospel, your love for Jesus when you're suffering in that vein, suffering because of that, then the persecution, reviling, ridicule, these things that come your way are in some measure to be expected. And so what Jesus is doing here at the outset is he's peeling the hearts and minds of his disciples away from the earthly notions that they may be clinging to, having convinced themselves that following Jesus necessarily entails a life of ease. It won't be this way. And it's this last section, this reminder of the likelihood of suffering and sorrow that Jesus assures the disciples and us of the promise of a heavenly reward and of the ever-present, ongoing mission that we're called to as his followers come what may. So here now, in these verses we'll look at today, 13 through 16, buttressed by this heavenly exhortation to suffer well as those who are hope-filled are a pair of functions, a couple of word pictures that really drive home the role, responsibility, the task of believers with regard to the world at large, or we might say with regard to culture at large. Jesus here shifts the narrative. Those who are persecuted and yet blessed are now those who are being sent into the world to be salt and light. 
what seems to be disqualifying is eminently qualifying in the economy of God, which is a word for us today. If we feel like we don't measure up, if we feel like we don't know enough or have enough, what seems to disqualify us, if we're suffering, what seems to disqualify us is qualifying in the sight of God. So let's take a look then at verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, he says. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We note here first the primary descriptors, the primary pictures that Jesus employs, right? Familiar to many. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And there are two overarching features of the text that we want to really grasp hold of, that we want to pay close attention to as we go throughout this passage. Two handles, you might say, that we want to hang on to as we're going throughout uh, Jesus' teaching here. The first is that the passage here, 13 through 16, has an outward bent. An outward bent. And the second is that the passage here has a communal focus, a collective focus. So we have Jesus' teaching here, a portion of it. It has an outward bent and a collective focus. And so we're keeping that in mind as we consider Jesus' teaching. So what do we mean by outward bent? Maybe obvious, but notice the trajectory here. Jesus' words, these descriptors that he's using. You are the salt, what? Of the earth. You are the light, what? Of the world. Jesus is giving important instructions here for life out there. These external realities that force us to move beyond ourselves and our thinking, that force us to forego self-preoccupation in order to consider our influence in the world around us as followers of Christ. Immediately, we're clued in that Jesus is teaching pointedly regarding the relationship of his followers to the culture at large. Jesus has a word with regard to our being and our doing in relation to the culture at large, namely, and hear this, that Christ's followers will be unique and distinct among those with whom they live, work, learn, and play. There's an outward bent. Additionally, there's this section of Jesus' teaching has a collective focus, a collective focus. The descriptors given and the subsequent commands here in Jesus' teaching are directed towards Jesus' followers, yes, as individuals, and we can take some marching orders from that, but primarily in this text, and most expressly, the command is given to Jesus' followers collectively, as a whole. There's a second person plural here. You all are salt. You all are light. It's a collective task, a collective focus. So what follows then encompasses the whole. And the significance of this shouldn't be lost on us in a context like this and within the local church. And we'll talk about that and move forward that and press on toward that throughout this text. So we have an outward bent. The world is taking and will continue to take notice of the people of God. You will be different and distinct among them. But how? Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. So what does being salt of the earth entail? We might have many ideas about that. A few of them, our minds quite naturally rush to sort of modern, contemporary uses of salt. We think about cooking, we're in the kitchen, 
I'm not often, but I try. And so we're, we're in that context, and we're adding salt, and it's enhancing flavor, isn't it? It's drawing out flavor of certain foods. Adds definition to others, some might say. Salt, as an additive, it gives a distinctiveness to whatever it touches. And there's some of that in the Christian life, wouldn't we say? That whatever environment we find ourselves in as followers of Jesus, we're enriching that environment in various ways. We'll make places better when we're in them. We'll enhance the world around us. We seek to re-enchant the world with the gospel, the creator, the giver of every good and perfect gift, the author of beauty itself, and the one who knows us deeply and loves us best. This is what we do. Yet alongside this provision of a distinct flavor, salt has another function that Jesus is pegging, or pegging down on here, getting after in his teaching, and that's one of preservation. When added to certain kinds of food, a high concentration of salt begins to wick away moisture, doesn't it? Begins to dry up any liquid that's present there, doing a preservation work. You might think of something like beef jerky or cured meat or fish or something like this. Salt begins to dry out these food items so they don't spoil or ultimately go to waste. What a picture then for the people of God. Preserving things so they don't ultimately spoil, go to waste, right? Similarly, Jesus calls his followers to be salt of the earth, to engage in the grand work of preservation. Followers of Christ, both those within earshot here on the mountainside listening to Jesus' teaching and those whose hearts are knit to him by the power of the Spirit in this room today have this incredible task before us of preservation. Well, preserving what? In short, our task is to preserve what we might call God's kingdom ethic. Preserving God's kingdom ethic. We're given this task, this joint task, us together and with the Spirit's help of guarding and upholding, preserving what's good, right, true, and holy. Why preservation work? Can't God's word and his ways stand alone, regardless of cultural influence? Well, sure, but Jesus knew, and what is evident to us now, is that there will never be a shortage of voices and influences seeking to redefine the terms, determining for themselves and impressing upon others their own definitions of what's good, right, true, and holy, over against what's set forth plainly in God's word. Jesus is keenly aware that as his followers begin to engage in this task of preservation, preserving his kingdom ethic, there will be no small amount of friction with those who disagree. Remember, this whole passage is grounded, sort of leaping off of this passage on suffering and persecution, the context for it. The house will be beat upon, the enemy will assail the righteous with his fiery darts, and yet what Jesus also knows, and great comfort to us, is that threats to God's kingly rule and his righteous ways will not ultimately triumph. Thus, it's the task of Christ's followers with regard to the culture at large and our neighbors nearby, to be busy about the work of preserving his kingdom ethic, awaiting the day when he returns to set all things to rights, and he'll do it. What's more and probably most astounding in this passage is that Jesus is well aware too that given the nature of the high call, there will be among his followers, among the people of God, a proclivity to shrink back from the assignment. There will be a temptation, if not a tendency for us, to forego the call, to jettison the task. Notice the rest of verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
a rhetorical device Jesus is employing. He's implying here that it cannot be restored, and he says as much in the second half of the verse. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There's a real temptation for believers then, for followers of Christ, to engage, instead of engaging culture on the terms as set forth by God's kingdom ethic, to capitulate or play by earthly rules. And we need no convincing that tendency is real. It has skin on it. And yet, setting the terms of agreement for cultural engagement is the prerogative of Christ's followers on account of God's kingly rule and his love for all people. Because that temptation is real, Jesus reminds his followers that in the moment they stop doing the preservation work, the moment they shrink back from the task, the ground is lost, that that decision is costly. There will be a constant temptation, if not a tendency in the life of Christ's followers, to cede ground in different areas or on different issues. Yet followers of Jesus must remain busy about the work of preserving God's kingdom ethic, helping others along in grace and truth, Pointing the world to what's at base, at its core, most fundamentally good, right, true, beautiful. What honors God and promotes human flourishing. These are the things that we need to be about preserving in our day. This is our preservation work. The role of Christ's disciples in our society is unique, you see. It's distinct. We're holding forth the word and the ways of God as the only means to eternal life on the one hand. And yet, the surest path to deep, abiding joy in the here and now on the other. And at this point in Jesus' teaching, we can anticipate a bunch of reactions, but at least two. And one of the reactions to Jesus' high clarion call here might be the person who's willing to engage. I'm a Christ follower. I have a call in my life to go and do. Yet, I'm unsure where to draw the line. How do I know where I am on that grid or spectrum of capitulation to preservation? How do I know if I'm striking the right balance amongst my friends, coworkers, the different contexts that I am, that I'm in? How do I stay encouraged in the midst of all of this? The second response or a second response might be uh, the, the sort of whiplash we feel. In light of the gravitas of what Jesus is saying, the weight of his words, who are we to do this? Little old me? Called to do what? And so you have these kind of reactions that are going on, and for both one, the one wondering how to traverse that spectrum, and the one who has that sinking feeling that this, this all may be a little too much, and any number of concerns in between, I think the text provides us this sort of sweet relief that frees us up, relieves us, relieves us of 10,000 temporal concerns that we might otherwise have as we recognize that our sure standing with Christ in the sight of God presses us onward toward joyful obedience. But first, before we get there, we should consider the second portion of Christ's teaching as it sort of helps round things out. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Here, Jesus drives down another tent peg of the disciples' communal identity, a collective focus. You are the light of the world, he says. Well, what is light? Thankfully for us, it's, it's pretty much exactly what we think. We don't have to dig in very far below the surface here to get, get a grasp of what Jesus is saying. So we notice the two word illustrations that Jesus employs here. 
a city on a hill, and a lamp on a stand in the middle of a household. Meaning's not far below the surface. We don't want to belabor the point, but we want to get at the thrust of what Jesus is saying. Our minds likely, again, race to contemporary pictures or, or, or cities and lights in our world. I think most expressly of a particular city at night or flying over the city. Say this one. And you're flying in from the Midwest as a random example, right? The big box stores of the suburbs, you can kind of navigate that as you're on the outer parts of the city and you see their well-lit parking lots, maybe a few identifiers that you can grasp hold of, probably not. Then you make that big turn, you're coming in uh, to Logan, and maybe you cross about Braintree, Quincy, and you start getting into this kind of area, and all of a sudden, peeling out, right, are these city lights, buildings, and you can't ignore it, can you? And so you'll see people for the first time when they fly at night, they're kind of stuck to the window, and you can't see past them or around them, and their nose is kind of pressed up because they can't look away. The nearer you get to the place from which so much life and energy emanates, There's no denying it. In the first century, the cities Jesus referred to were off the grid, and so they didn't light up in the same way, obviously, but what he's getting at after here historically are cities that are often built on a hill or into the hillside. Often their fortress walls are built of bright white limestone, a resource that is plentiful in the area. And so whether traveling by land or by sea, what inevitably happens is you're going across this mountainous landscape, kind of drab, dark, dreary, sort of gray, and all of a sudden what appears but a bright city with its gleaming white walls, and you can't look away. There's this concentration, a community of people commanding the attention of onlookers, hear this, commanding the attention of onlookers, and it's impossible to be ignored. This is a city on a hill. And this, Jesus says, is what his disciples are to be in our world and in our culture. A bright light standing against a backdrop of darkness, commanding the attention of all. Similarly, believers as the light of the world are like a lamp, first century container, basically filled with oil and equipped with a wick. And when lit, against serving its designated, it's designed for its intentional purpose to disseminate light. Spread light for the whole room, the whole household, that individuals might benefit from it, be guided by it, that they might see by it. The logic here is airtight, right? The city's on a hill, and it cannot be ignored. The lamp is placed in not just a place, but a prominent place and a strategic place so that it lights the whole household. It's never placed under a basket, therefore uh, foregoing its, its design for its inherent function. It's placed in a prominent, strategic place and gives light so that many can be helped and guided along by it. What we know is true from the testimony of of the rest of Scripture and from Jesus' ensuing remarks here is that the essence of this light shines forth in our world, helping and guiding those along. The essence of that is the truth as set forth in God's Word. And the good works we do as believers, as followers of Christ. Jesus will even go on to refer to himself as the light of the world. So increasingly, we are to be about the work of bringing God's word to bear concerning different topics and in different contexts and relative to current events and issues of our day. We're, be, we're to be busy about doing good works under those around us, a combination of those good works that we do in more plain hopes that those we're serving will become followers of Jesus alongside us, And some good works that we do too by virtue of the fact that we're just followers of Christ ourselves. 
Note here, too, that the city isn't changing its DNA in order to become more noticeable. The lamp on its stand isn't changing its inherent function based on the need at hand. They're both fulfilling their design for inherent purpose simply by virtue of what they are. You and I, believers, are to do the same. We fulfill our God-given purpose according to our God-given identity as blood-bought children of God. The gospel grounds us. Therefore, we go out from it. And this commitment to truth in our day and this insistence upon doing good works unto others is all hurtling toward a more ultimate end, isn't it? The stand for and promotion of truth is not an end unto itself. And the good works don't stop there. In verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that others might stand around and talk about how bright the city walls were? whether they're made of limestone or not? No. So they can rave about how impressive the light was. Did you hear him? Did you see her? No. He says in the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. By virtue of being who you are in Christ, fumbling around as we often do, but as dependent on his Spirit's help as we ought to be, the world will take notice. And if no one ever steps forward to sing your praise or my praise and we don't get any credit for it, we can rest assured, based on what Jesus has said to his followers, that our commitment to the task of preservation and our commitment to truth and love toward those around us around whom we live, work, learn, and play, will ultimately bring glory to the one who deserves it most. And so we don't need to therefore be yearning for credit. You're yearning for praise. Instead, we're just being who we are in Christ. An old ministry mentor of mine summarized the task of the Christian disciple as existing in our world to do at least two things with regard to our neighbors. He said Christian disciples are those who exist in our world with regard to our neighbors to do two things to build bridges, and to turn on lights. To build bridges and to turn on lights. That is, to engage those around us who believe and see things differently than we do, and with the Spirit's help and bolstered by the encouragement of the people of God and the community of faith that we found, to turn on lights for them as we go, showing them all the things that we've seen ourselves, to help them see and guide them along toward the path of righteousness. To be about the work of preserving God's kingdom ethic, bringing truth to bear in love for those around us. They'll see your good works, and they'll give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Often when meeting another believer for the first time, I like to ask them, eventually, we won't do this if we're outside and I I hit you with this question, Um, but if we work our way around to this question, who is on your list? And what I mean by that is, who is it in your life that's been doing this work that you can think of? Because likely, as a believer, there are people in your life who've been doing the work of preservation, holding out before you again and again and again what's at base, true, right, good, and beautiful. They've been doing this work. Maybe you haven't realized it, but as you think about it, you're like, yeah, this is happening. Who are the people on your list who've been turning on lights for you in your journey and following Christ? And often that question is met with maybe a name of a pastor, a youth pastor, a fellow church member, a friend, a family member. You can probably think of names for yourself. 
And in coming across this passage, I'm reminded in the moment that every day, simply by virtue again of being just who we are in Christ, that the opportunity is ever before us to join someone's list. That may be intentional. It may be something we set out to do. Or it may be something that happens just in the natural flow of things, sort of incidental. But the opportunity is before us as we're salt and light in this world to join someone's list. For some in the room today, whether you know it or not, your list may be just now starting. You may just now be adding names to it. You've not yet trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you're just leaning in, just starting to get a feel for what this is about. Wanted to experience church and see what its people are like. Wanted to hear the guest preacher on your first visit, sorry. But I've kind of peeled back the layers here, right? And opened up the curtain just a little bit and put all of our cards out on the table. We're not working from some complex system here in which we have it all figured out or all put together. As a friend of mine likes to say, there aren't a lot of gimmicks, there's just gospel through and through and through. We're simply trusting that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he'll do what he says he'll do. We believe that God created us to glorify him, but because of our sin debt, we're unable to fulfill that inherent purpose. So when the time came, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay that sin debt on our behalf. We believe he did that. He died, was buried, and he rose on the third day. And now, in light of his resurrection... We're attempting to live our lives together as sent ones in accordance with the faith that we profess, and trustingly so, picking up the task of preservation and being lights in our world, this task of building bridges and turning on lights. For those in the room who trust in Christ as Savior already and who at base earnestly desire, if you were honest with me in this moment, you would say, I really desire to walk in joyful obedience, but questions still remain. How can I stay encouraged in the task? How can I stay encouraged along the way? How do I know if I'm striking the balance right? What if this all feels like too much, feels too burdensome? I mentioned the text clues us in a bit on how all of this finds its rootedness, how all of it's grounded in such a way so that we might confidently move forward in joyful obedience. First, recall the context of the passage here and to whom it is that Jesus is actually speaking. So you have this scene on the mountainside, and, and, and people have gathered there. This massive group of people have gathered there, and distinct among them, the text says, are the followers of Jesus. And they've taken seat on the mountainside to listen to their teacher, to learn from their teacher. Note then that the followers sit under Jesus' teaching as followers of Jesus. And this means everything for us. They sit there as followers of Jesus, hearing this word. This is Jesus speaking. One commentator reminds us concerning this passage that its parts are but empty law, a dry ethic, he calls it, if what is taught here is abstracted from its teacher. He goes on to write that the demands of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, all of this together are but mere ideals if this is not the Son of God teaching. Gratefully for us, and wonder of wonders, this is the Son of God teaching. As for the followers then, the gospel has fundamentally reshaped their identity, their sense of belonging. It's renewed their confidence. It's actually brought them to life. 
They're living among those now who trustingly believe that no more work needs to be done in order for them to gain favor or right standing with God. The work has been joyfully, completely accomplished. So, as always, if we sense that we have little or nothing to offer God, then we take our little or we take our nothing and we bring it to Jesus. We bring it to Jesus, remembering not to despise our neediness before him. He invites it, wants it, and can do more than you can imagine with it. He's a good father. Matthew, in this gospel, as we go through it, will remind us over and over and over again that God is a good father. Your best efforts, then, are propped up on Jesus' gospel work. And this is good news for us. Your sense that you're ill-equipped, in actuality, makes you eminently qualified for the grand work he intends to accomplish through you. Secondly, remember again the crowd of followers to whom Jesus is speaking here. His followers collectively, a collective focus. One of the most profound thoughts, and hear me on this, one of the most profound thoughts you'll have in all of your Christian life is the moment that you remember that you're not doing this alone. That you're not going after this alone. Stanley Juarez writes about this passage, the Sermon on the Mount is not addressed to individuals, but to the community that Jesus begins and portends through the calling of his disciples. The sermon, he writes, is not a heroic ethic. No heroes here. It is the constitution of a people. He says, you cannot live by the demands of the sermon alone. Seek to follow these, isolated from the context, detached from their speaker. You cannot live by the demands of this sermon alone. But, he writes, that's exactly the point. That's the point. It's so gloriously the point that if you or I, we have a shot to pull this thing off, that if we have a shot at this, it's going to be based on the strength of Christ's work done on our behalf. And in the midst of knitting our hearts together, Strengthening one another's bones for the task ahead. This is the critical role of the local church, not only in our spiritual formation, but in grounding our confidence when we set out to do the things that Christ has called us to do. This reality, for me, uh, began to set in more heavily over the past six months. For over a decade, I'm a bit embarrassed to say, I've thought about this area of the country and this region and this city pretty tirelessly. My mind and my heart have been in this area, and in a strange turn of events, my first visit here to Hope was actually in November of 2017. Uh, some friends and I were in the city, and we came here to Hope, and, uh, one, and I guess part of that trip was, and it's come up in my time hop and Instagram, Facebook, more recently on a, on a visit here this past November, but we joined Hope for a church-wide community Thanksgiving meal here, and uh, my friends and I sat up in that corner of the balcony, and I was sitting with a plate in my lap, like eating turkey and cranberry sauce. You know, what are we doing here at Hope? And I'm sort of laughing these days as things come full circle. I'm standing here, and I mentioned to you that it's a bit surreal for me to be in this place, because uh, turkey in my lap, preaching here, you know, different settings, right? This is all becoming more real to me, the role of the local church, the importance of the local church, And what I mean to say is that what existed once as prayers for a conceptual place and a city somewhat over there have, in God's kindness, for the past six months been redirected, refocused, recentered on a particular people. And Paige and I have been praying for you and for this church body. 
And I'm continuing to pray in this vein that this work, even that we're talking about today and the providence of God landing on a passage like this, that the work of preserving and illuminating truth, the call to be salt and light in our world, would not be far from you. And I'd be privileged to join you along the way, shepherding and guiding, listening and learning, helping and being helped, loving and being loved, committing to the proclamation of the gospel truth, and the building up of one another to the glory of God and the good of others. It's been a great privilege of mine to spend this time with you. I look forward to meeting many of you if you're able to hang around for a bit and chat with us. My wife Paige is here with me. Um, But here's the message for us today, this kind of little picture of being salt and light in our world. What this means for us as we move out of these doors, as we seek to build bridges and, and turn on lights, this reminder of the community of faith that we have that supports us in that endeavor, and this rootedness in the gospel that equips us for the work. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for these moments with brothers and sisters here and for guests who have joined us. I pray, uh, God, that as we go out here, that the preaching of your word would go with us, not based on any eloquence or any way that I put words together, but based on the truth um, that that is at its heart. I pray as we meet and fellowship with one another and share time with one another, uh, that you would do the kind of work that you could only do, knitting our hearts together with one another. And thank you so much for this body of believers. God, I pray uh, for hope in the days ahead decision-making process, Lord, that you would give them all the wisdom and discernment that you can give. Jesus, continue to equip us for the task. When we feel ill-equipped for it, I pray that you would remind us that we're right where you want us. Strengthen our bones and help us to continue doing this work of building bridges and turning on lights with our neighbors in this city and beyond. And we thank you for it. It's in Jesus' strong name that I pray. Amen.